Welcome to the Forager Podcast, where I talk with cottage food entrepreneurs about their strategies for running a food business from home. I'm David Crable, and today I'm talking with Scott and Christine Steenson. They live in Forest Ranch, California, and sell roasted coffee with their cottage food business, Road Roaster Coffee Company. Simply put, Scott and Christine have one of the craziest startup stories that I have ever heard. They used to live in Paradise, California, and as you may know, their entire town was destroyed back in 2018's Campfire, which was California's deadliest and most destructive wildfire in history. After losing their home and nearly all of their physical possessions, they had to start over, and that's exactly what they did. Christine had long dreamed of opening a coffee shop, so they said, hey, let's try it. Why not? We literally have nothing else to lose. And as you'll see, they actually had a whole lot to gain. Their coffee business quickly took off, and they have been going pedal to the metal ever since. With almost $50,000 of sales last year, they are definitely one of the most successful cottage food businesses in California. In this episode, you'll hear how they created a very unique brand that flies in the face of traditional coffee marketing, and how their mission-driven approach has allowed them to become very involved in their local community. And with that, let's jump right into this episode. Welcome to the show, Scott and Christine. Nice to have you here. Hey, it's great to be here. Well, I know you guys have this crazy backstory. Can you take me back to how this whole coffee business got off the ground? Yeah, Chris and I were previously lived in a, a town named Paradise, California. We now live one ridge over in another town called Forest Ranch. But on November 8th, 2018, the town was affected by a massive uh, California's largest wildfire. It, it burned down 20,000 structures and unfortunately about 87 people lost their souls. And um, prior to the fire, we had talked a lot about and we had discussions about opening a coffee shop, but really hadn't acted on it. We had our own lives. Chris was working as a fish tech with a salmon fishery and um, I was a traveling salesman. And so we basically said, you know, we've had to change every single aspect of our lives except our jobs. So maybe this is our opportunity to try to do something. So I, I know we're going to get into your business uh, in a little bit, but can you take me back to that event, the campfire? I mean, I know it was just crazy. I'm only a couple hours away from you guys. So what was that night like? Well, I think Chris was a little more affected by it. I got up about two o'clock in the morning and um, I had to drive up to a town called Arcata. And so I was already hundreds of miles away when it happened. And I'll let, you know, Chris will, will talk here in a second about her experience. But for me, it was a unique experience because it was, I was completely helpless. I had to hundreds of miles away and my wife and my children and everything have to evacuate by themselves. So for me, it was a mad dash driving my company vehicle, you know, hundred miles an hour for three hours straight trying to get home. By the time he did make it to Chico, of course, the roads were closed, so he could not get up to paradise anyway so we had a meeting spot in Orville but no it was a no that day was just starting out as an average day it was just getting my daughter to school and we noticed the sky was a little pink and actually very pretty and we knew that it was a, a fire but living there most all of my life you're used to fires so it wasn't anything out of the usual or anything to be concerned about at the time but I would say within two hours of that, this, it was when the chaos started and we were being told to evacuate paradise. And I had to go back and grab my daughter from school and get to the house and start packing up anything and everything we could. And 
hit Neil Road and, you know, took a couple hours to get seven miles. And then we lived seven miles to the freeway. That was kind of crazy because it happened so fast. And even when I was evacuating and, and embers coming down, wind was going crazy. I still, at that point, did not believe that the fire would make it clear to where we lived because we were at the bottom of Paradise, the lower end, and the fire was um, in the upper end across the canyon at the time. So, yeah, it just happened extremely fast. What was the pa- waiting period like for you to, you know, figure out if your home was still there or not? It took quite a while. It took a while. That was, yeah. That, that was, was the hardest part. Really hard. It was almost a month. So there were like people that were in the town, you know, the firefighters and support, you know, uh, construction crews or whatever it was, recovery crews. So we would just be glued to the like Facebook, you know, to social media, to anything to see because some people would drive up and down roads with their cameras, with their cell phones and take videos of certain roads. So we would just watch everything we could to see if there, somebody would happen to be driving up and down our road. And then, it, then that's the problem. If somebody did go down our road, and then right when they got to where our house was, they panned the, the video, video to the other side of the road. To the other side of the road, right. So we didn't really know. And then, and we also had a bunch of chickens there as well that we that we left, and we weren't sure what was happening with them. Well, but then we had a friend in the fire department, and I think she went by the house eventually, or was able to get somebody, one of her friends, to go by the house and tell us. A that unfortunately the um unfortunately the house was was no longer there, but the 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 great thing was the amazing thing was that all the chickens had survived because they were kind of in a separate part of our property and there wasn't much brush around it and so not only did our chickens survive but all of our neighbors took their chickens and stuffed they, them into our coop. That well, well, the neighbor chickens found their way into our coop. Yeah, so so it was one big flock of chickens when by the time we were able to get up there and, and see what we had left. So that's what made it out of the fire were those chick- chickens. And so people took care of the chickens. They were giving them water and all that kind of stuff for the month that we couldn't get up there. But to answer your question, somebody eventually was able to go by our house personally and um, tell us whether or not it was still there. What did you guys lose in the fire? I mean, Physically everything. I mean, everything. Yeah. Th- I think th- the only thing we were able to, to really grab was our, our backpacking backpacks. Some camping gear, some just a handful of clothes and our paperwork. Yeah. And- that was about it. Um, like they said, when I was evacuating, I'm still in the back of my mind and not believe that that fire would make it to our house. So in hindsight, I could have packed an entire pickup truck of stuff, but I didn't. We just grabbed the essentials. That was pretty much it. We lost, lost it. we lost everything. We lost everything, but then, but it's all physical. We were, we we're so fortunate that our, you know, our physical well-being was obviously, it was not affected. But then again, you know, now almost, you know, three years later, it's almost like, you know, we look at what we've gained because of what we lost. So, you know, it's hard to answer what did we lose because yeah. what we've gained as well. It's been an exchange for sure. Yeah. And then you kind of come to realize what's, important in life you know and it's really not the things that you have there are a lot of sentimental things but you know there are worse things (laughs) yeah i was looking back at some of the social media posts from you guys back at that time and i mean obviously it's difficult but you just seem to have a really exceptionally positive attitude like much more positive than i would expect of someone who's going through that and that's from both of you what do you think 
causes you guys to have that kind of positive attitude in a really dark time? I think that you have two choices and one choice is to dwell on your loss. Of course, you're going to mourn no matter what. You'll mourn any loss that you have. And I think the other choice is you just get through it and you be positive and you be strong for each other. And when I say each other, not, not just your family, but all your loved ones and your friends around you, we feel very blessed and fortunate that just being able to find a place to live. And we were so distracted with that. And the fact that we had three kids that we had to get to school every day and the constant distraction of trying to keep life as normal as possible for those kids, getting them to school, making sure they're with whatever friends were left uh, in town to hang out with. And so I think we, we just chose to move on and to move up and to stay positive in that aspect. And I would say mourn kind of silently. You know, you also got to look at the personality types. Prior to the fire, Chris and I were avid backpackers. and But we always knew that, you know, you, there was always, you know, a mountain to be climbed. And the rewards for climbing that mountain are immense. And so we had experienced that, I think, together as a couple. We'd like done the John Muir Trail. We'd done all these other backpacking trips that were, you know, hundreds of miles that we spent time just alone together climbing mountains. And I think those physical mountains kind of prepared us as a couple together to be able to climb and summit our own personal mountains. You know, they always say don't make big life choices during times of crisis. Well, <laughs> we did I the mean, exact opposite of that. We probably made the biggest life choice during the point of our biggest life crisis we'll ever encounter. When we ask the question, what do we have to lose? Yeah, we have nothing else to lose, so why not? Why not? What, why not do it? Everyone thought we were crazy, but here we are. You know, I, I had my previous job. It was a good job, but at the same time, it was a job. And Chris had the same thing. She had a good job, but it was a job. And so now, with a fresh new perspective on every single aspect of our lives, I don't know. I don't think that choice was all that hard. And, and you know, then you also look at the town of Paradise. You look at the people that are there. It's it's almost like we owe it to the people of Paradise. We owe it to the town of Paradise. But just, I think, also the American spirit of perseverance. I think we owe it to ourselves and in our, in our country just to do what we can. Because, again, what do we got to lose? Might as well. I think that's one of the things that really struck me about your business. It's just a very mission-driven business, right? I mean, it's for the people of paradise. It's for hardworking Americans. It's for the people rebuilding this town. But what we, we settled on earlier on was like, what are we going to do? What are we going to have that's going to drive us and what's going to help us keep ourselves focused? And so we came up with the four pillars. Those four pillars are community, charity, coffee, and fun in that order. And the reason why it's in that order is because, you know, without community, you have nothing. We're just wandering souls. But then to, in order to have a strong community, you need to have charity. People need to take care of each other. People need to look out for each other. So if we're, if we're getting ourselves involved with community or getting ourselves involved with charity, then that gives us the right to do our business of coffee. And it gives our, our coffee purpose. And so then once we have that, that purpose is there, well, then the last part is fun. So having those four pillars for us has allowed us to, to concentrate on aspects that we think are good for the community, but also good for our business and good for us. So can we start with that? I mean, the community aspect, 
how do you feel like you guys have uh, embraced that and helped support the community around you? We love the community. I mean, people are just, you know, coffee's, it's such a cool product because people love coffee. People love they, coffee. They yeah. love what coffee brings to them on a personal level. I mean, it's not just the coffee, but it's, it brings people together. Yeah, it brings people together. And so, you know, we started this business knowing nothing about roasting coffee. I mean, Chris was definitely more into the enjoying coffee for what it was. I was more into drinking coffee so that I could continue to work. <laughs> for caffeine. Right, caffeine. And so, but both of those are good for their own reasons. But what the way it's brought together community is like, it's like, okay, well, how can we work? And so when we started our business, one of the decisions we made is we wanted to have a label printer for our coffee bags so that we can not only just obviously do our labels for our, our coffee, but also so that we could do custom labels for charitable organizations or do or for causes or is something along the community events Fundraisers. and then also like you know we we did a beer with a company of secret trail brewery we did a collaboration with a beer with them and then with that being done then we were able to do a, a release party and then with that release party we tied it into a charitable cause for the alzheimer's association then at that party was you know a band and so we had community charity coffee and fun everything all together and that's just one piece. I mean, we've had other individuals come out and reach out, you know, help us and put things together, introduce us to people. Well, I have noticed that. I mean, it just seems like you're so well connected to the community. You have so many collaborations with other businesses and nonprofits and organizations. Do you feel like you were really super connected to the Paradise community before the fire? I'll answer that. I think to me, absolutely not. Because my in my life, I've moved my entire life as a military kid, then in the military after that. And so I've moved since I was the day I was born. And then I moved to paradise and I stopped moving. But the thing was, was that my kind of my line of work that I was involved in was lots of travel, you know, two weeks, three weeks a month out of town. Not only did I not get to know my town, but I also did get to know my family a whole lot. So I personally, prior to the business, I was not connected um, as much as I want to be. Now, Chris... Yeah, I would say on me, for me, it was more, you know, more everything more revolved around the kids and getting uh, involved um, with community activities for like, say their school or being on the board of like the swim team and putting on events like that. But that's probably the extent for me was just more uh, kid stuff involved with schools and things like that. So, you know, it was that, that, that thing, it's like, you know, you don't know what you have until you lose it. And then that's when the gravity of the situation hits when you're like, yeah, why didn't I spend the time to do this? Why didn't I should have done this? I could have, you know, it's like you start beating yourself up. Or I should have. Well, then it's like, no, no, stop beating yourself up because there's nothing you can do about that. But what can you do? You can make some choices that will affect the future. And so then that's why now it's not, it's unacceptable to us to not try to find a way to work with somebody else to help somebody. Like what we try to do, if there's a new person comes into the farmer's market, it's like, why would we not want to help this individual? So what we do, we'll do something like, hey, if somebody buys our coffee, we're going to tell them about your booth. And if they show our bag of coffee to you, can you give them, a, you know, like whatever, 50 cents off your product or something like that? And then vice versa, if, if you send somebody over to our booth and they show that your product, well, we'll give them a dollar off of our bag. And so then that way we, we can start really developing that relationship with, with the vendor 
but also promote the farmer's market. And letting businesses know that, you know, being open as a business to working and collaborating with other businesses, I think is so important. And I'm surprised at how little <laughs> we, we don't see businesses doing that. And uh, we love it. Do you have any sense for how many collaborations or partnerships you have at this point? Uh, you know, at least, wow, I mean, 10, 20, uh, 20, 30 collaborations because it's like you have, you always got to look, you know, hey, can we sell you copy? Yeah, sure. I mean, not anybody else can sell you copy, but then it's like, okay, what else can we do beyond this? Like, what can we do? What are our strengths that we can do to help you? And so we have this aggregate company. They have, they all these big, you know, all these trucks to go around Butte County, the county we live in. We supply the coffee to them for their business. So we ask them, hey, would you mind if we kind of work together a little more on social media? You guys are really active on there, but we are more so. And would you mind if on your fleet of trucks, you know, there's always, if you don't ask, the answer is always going to be no. <laughs> and so we asked them and said, hey, would you mind if we put on the, on the back of all your big trucks, would you mind if we put sticker, a big sticker on each one of them that said driver fueled by Road Roaster Coffee? They get to come back a week later, like, yeah, why not? But, you know, we start getting people say, hey, I saw your sticker on the back of these aggregate trucks. What kind of crazy idea is that? I'm like, well, I said, what that is, is that's a, that's an aggregate company that's supporting a small business. You should probably make it a good idea to, if you ever need, or you're going to be building anything that you might want to support them because they're supporting us. And so then it, it opens up the conversation for about businesses and supporting each other. And people, oh, that's a pretty neat idea. I think I'll do that. And so then they go there and they say, they say, hey, Road Roaster sent us over here. And then, you know, that gets back around. And, and, so, and so then they come back and say, hey, guys, would you like to have a little display in our, in our store? And it's like, okay, does that make sense? We're not really sure. But the fact that there's now conversation going now with this company that's just beyond coffee. For instance, um, Ridge Builders out of Paradise, they're a construction company up there. We met them and we said, hey, look, if there's any opportunity whenever you're building a house, We'll donate a bag of coffee and call it a welcome home blend. And so, you know, when you do the cogs on a middle price coffee, you know, those cogs are going to be about six, seven dollars for a bag of coffee. And then, you know, they let you add in all of the uh, the labor costs and everything. Beyond that, you're looking at, you know, eight dollars uh, for a bag of coffee. And it's like, okay, eight dollars for us to have a bag of coffee, to have a construction company put a bag of coffee into a brand new home in paradise for a, a returning family that's coming home, how can we say no to that? And so there is not only the return on it for for us as a business, because it, we, we are the first coffee in somebody's new home, but it also helps the, the builder company because they're putting together these little a gift pack. And then we do like with schools, we donate our local school here in town. We give them coffee because on Fridays, they have their, their kids, uh, they have kids come out and sell co um, hot coffee outside the school. And so here, you know, it's an opportunity for us to support our children. But at the same time, it gets posted on Facebook. Hey, Road Roaster Coffee donated coffee to Forest Ranch School. And so it's, it's spending money, but at the same time, it's helping with our brand. And it's strategic. It's not just always giving away coffee just to give it away. There, there has to be a, a, a value on both ends of that transaction. Well, I mean, obviously it's working because your business has grown tremendously. And, you know, we'll get into that a little bit. Let's walk back a little bit, though. Obviously, this whole campfire event happened. There's 
a mourning process, there's a recovery process. And at some point you're thinking about maybe creating a coffee business out of this. When did you actually start to, you know, form the business and how did you get it off the ground? So let's see, it was March, 2019. And we decided, you know, that's, that's when we sat around and said, hey, we're going to be coffee roasters first, or our plan was really more a coffee roaster, the coffee trailer, and then coffee shop. And so in order to commit ourselves to it, that's when in May of 2019, that's when we formed our LLC. We really didn't start selling coffee until the end of August of 2019, because what we did during that time was we spent time learning how to roast coffee. And that's when we, we bought our first roaster. It was a small little sample roaster. We bought that and we taught ourselves how to be, I mean, only there's ever, you'll never learn how to fully roast coffee because there's so many moving parts, but we got ourselves just to the point where we can get ourselves in trouble. We didn't have any mentors or, or anyone that taught us anything. We just kind of, everything we did, we approached very slowly and cautiously because mistakes are expensive. You know, it took us a while to get going. And then, you know, when Scott started learning the roasting and started getting more and more confident with that, we hit the road. And um, we packed up the trailer with the roaster. We camped in campsites while he roasted and we traded uh, coffee for trout yeah. <laughs> with, with some of the local campers. And they yeah. loved it, you know, and you have the campground and it's filled with this amazing aroma of roasted coffee beans. And, you know, it sparked curiosity and people would come up and talk to us and you know, the kids enjoyed it and, you know, they would act embarrassed, but yeah. I think they really liked it. And it, it was great having that family time together to do some traveling while learning on the road. And um, then we came back and kind of just hit the road with the business then. Yeah, it was, that was pretty wild. We'd be at a campground and people would be like, what the heck are you guys doing? And that would give us an opportunity to talk to people and then understand, you know, kind of explain it to them, you know, and, and so... We didn't know what the heck we're talking about, but the ability to explain it over and over again to people really allowed us to start forming our ideas and what we liked and what we enjoyed about it and where our strengths and our weaknesses is going to lie. I'd imagine that those conversations you were having were also just really helpful when you got to the actual markets and started selling your coffee. Yeah, it did. It did. I mean, I've had previous experience in sales and marketing to a certain degree, but it was in the construction world. So it's very, very different than the coffee kind of world of, of sales marketing. And so we tried, we started out with different avenues. We were able to get a coffee into our local market here, get feedback on that. You know, the plan we originally was to have a coffee trailer and then be able to use that coffee trailer to go to events. We wanted to hear from the actual people that were enjoying our coffee directly. And that's kind of hard in the retail world or the wholesale world when it might go through different layers. So that, that trailer aspect, yeah, it definitely helped. So what were some of the best resources you found? Because you said you didn't know anything about making coffee when you started. Like, where did you start? What did you learn from? YouTube. Yeah. Well, I mean, we started with a sample roaster. Eventually, we were able to buy a Diedrich. Uh, one kilogram roaster and that makes, you know, roast up to about two pounds. That ran about 10 grand as new. When we bought that, you know, that's a, oh, so much money. We're like, me being a sales guy, I'm trying to negotiate with them, trying to get the money to come down, you know, this and that. They wouldn't budge because they are like 
the best roaster out there and they know that and it's not the best roaster because they look good it's the best roaster because they last they're good american-made roaster that will roast a good coffee for 40 50 years and the resale value on them it's like okay i could buy a, a diedrich you know or we can buy it for 10 grand but we know that we're going to sell it for 10 grand and whereas you buy imported roasters you, you buy it for 10 grand you're going to sell it for four grand but what we were able to negotiate though was like okay you guys are going to come down to price we're going to do something and um, they're like, okay, what we can do is we can offer you a free week, uh, a week's worth of training of coffee roasting training. Like, Hey, there you go. So we drove up there to pick up our roaster and they gave us a week of training and that helped get it going. And that got us, to, you know, got us to where we just knew enough to, to really start getting in trouble and to be able to ask the right questions of ourselves. And so when we came back with our roaster, that's when YouTube and then also Facebook, because you know, like there's a coffee roasters group. There's a home coffee roasters group. There's all these different groups, roaster forums that are on there. So that was really it. We just poured ourselves into watching videos after videos and and asking questions on Facebook groups. We did go up and meet some other roasters up in Oregon. We reached out to them and said, hey, do you mind if we come up and talk to you and kind of get out of our area so they weren't competitive. There wasn't any competition, any problems with that aspect. Stayed in a cheap hotel and talked to coffee roasters. And they kind of gave us some good good guidance as well. So, yeah, we reached out to the community both online and uh, physically. And then we used as many free resources on training as we could. Why did you guys decide to invest 10 grand into a coffee roaster instead of trying to use some kind of homemade method at first? Well, as much as we knew that we didn't know anything, we knew that we still had to create a business and we had to make money. We had to be serious about what we did. And so... My background in the military was uh, fixing jets. And then after that, I, I spent a lot of time installing and repairing large pieces of equipment. And so in my experience, a lot of businesses would cut corner on the very piece of equipment that was vital to their success. And so, well, you know, Chris and I sat down and talked about it. We had, we had initially bought a small roaster. The first roaster we bought was, was like 800 bucks. And that's when we kind of proved out, okay, we could do something with this. And so we did a lot of research, looked at used and all that, but we said, you know what, this is going to be the cornerstone of our business. And we're at such a point where, you know, if we fail or we, we, we buy something, you know, for $5,000, but then it keeps breaking, well, then that's going to do, be very detrimental to us. So that's when we made kind of the decision because we, we did get some insurance money, but that was like, okay. Do we spend that on getting tools? I mean, my toolbox that I lost and all my wrenches and all that. And so I think by us taking that money, I mean, I still can. I still don't have the tools to change the oil effectively on our cars like I used to before the fire. I used to do all the work on our cars. And now we don't even have a garage because that's where our roaster is. But we took that money instead and bought a good quality roaster. And then we found, you know, when we sold it for our bigger one, we got we got our, our money back 100%. Yeah. And so... By spending the right amount of money on the right piece of equipment, we saved a lot of money. I mean, there were times with that roaster, when we got to where the capacity of that roaster was was at max, I literally was out there seven days a week, 16 hours a day for probably about four months. True story. Yeah. Towards towards the holidays, things started picking up. Unexpectedly, we were just growing quickly and um, bursting at the seams. And Scott, you know, that was his thing. He would wake up early, start that little roaster up and start roasting all the way. I would go to bed, you know, eight, nine, whatever. And he would still be up one o'clock in the morning out there roasting. 
I would get up and it would be immediately start packaging coffee. So there were days when I was packaging coffee as soon as it came out of the the roaster because we couldn't keep up. And so yeah. thank God we got a, the following year to get the a new roaster. If we had bought a lesser quality roaster, it would have broke down. Yeah. And then it would have been, and then we've been sitting there working on it, fixing it. And then you try you buy a cheaper roaster and you try to, because again, this is on my experience, you buy a cheap machine, you're going to get cheap support. And you so pay for it. this company, you give you a good machine. And I, we did have, I mean, we, I mean, because when they found out what the kind of production we were doing with it, they're like, you got, they didn't believe us. That's crazy. And it was, <laughs> yeah, we do a lot. And so, but we, so it, it did, it did have moments where it broke. But the thing was, is that I was able to call them immediately, troubleshoot it with them because they had competent techs. And then they were able to overnight the part and have it here. And we were able to keep roasting. So that was probably the cheapest roaster we ever bought. You said that you're working over 110 hours per week. Yeah, yeah. It, it was crazy. I was going to bed literally at probably one in the morning and I was getting back up about five or six in the morning and just get the roaster going. Because the capacity of that of that roaster was only two pounds. So we would get... There's five and yeah, 10 pound orders. And... Get, yeah, 25 pound orders. Well, there's 100 pounds right there. And, you know, it takes you 15. You can do about three loads every hour. So you're only able to do six pounds an hour, maybe eight if you really start pushing it, depending on the roast. But you get a couple of days where you get a couple hundred pounds of orders. It's, it's, it's there's no choice. You just have to get it done, and and we couldn't afford a bigger roaster at the time. And did you start turning down people or saying no to orders? We really didn't. Not we, really. We went full steam ahead, and we just worked through it, and knowing that. You know, when you're starting a business, it takes a lot and it's a lot of sacrifice and blood, sweat and tears. And um, Scott and I were on board with that and we knew what we had to do and that's what we did. So we did it. <laughs> I wouldn't want to go back. To yeah. That. Was, uh, you never see two people so relieved to have the holidays over. And I don't even remember that Christmas personal because we were so busy. But the, the day when we finally got the new roaster was like. Pure joy. Pure joy. Because then it's like, wow, and our life's back. But, you know, the tool they have is the tool for the job. And that was a tool that we had. Yeah, I've seen this uh, new roaster that you have, and that's an impressive piece of equipment. Um, what size is that roaster, and how much did that one cost? So that's a that's a 5K. It's, it's not, it would be nice to get a bigger one, but, you know, we're doing this debt-free. So that one is a 5K, so a 5 kilograms. So it does about 11 to 12 pounds at a time. So, you know, it quintupled our production capability. And that one was, when we bought it, was $20,000. But now it's, it's so, and we got it right before the price increase. It went up to about 23000 Yeah, and it's even more than that now. Yeah. I mean, you talked about how crazy your business went in that first holiday season, and you started selling late summer, early fall. So, like, how did you get your name out there so quickly? How did your business start growing so fast? We put our coffee first in this in our town of Forest Ranch. We have a small little general store, and we put it in there. And then once people kind of found out who we are and what we were and all that, that, that started selling really quickly. We started selling at events because, as as you know, during the holidays, that's when all the Christmas fairs and previews and... We just jumped right in with what we had and kind of just started selling. And we focused on Paradise quite a bit and different entities like the fire department and the Johnny Appleseed days and things like that. 
So we just, you know, just got out there and we were spread by friends and family and shared a lot of coffee. And back what we were talking about a little earlier, we're not just here to do an event and to sell coffee. What can, what else can we do? And so like for our first event we ever did, um, my sister lives in Hawaii and a friend gave her to give to us a couple pounds of some Hawaiian green coffee that hadn't been roasted yet. So we're like, okay, well, we have, we have two pounds of Kona coffee. Do we just roast it and drink it ourselves? You know, that'd be nice. I mean, but we said, what can we do with this? And so what we did, we're like, well, this is our first event. So we took that coffee and we roasted it and we made each bag $30. Was it $30 for each bag? And we were going to say all 100% of the proceeds go to charity. So that really helped people start talking about us. You know, the word of mouth definitely started spreading. Social media, obviously, is a big help for a coffee company. People started sharing a lot of our, you know, our posts and everything. So people would come to us with opportunities. And if it made sense, we would just commit ourselves. And I think if, you know, by committing to the events, people saw our commitment to our business. And so more people wanted to, would come to us with opportunities. So it was just really just, just hustling and working hard and coming up with ideas and on, on, how, on how to create, you know, buzz or, or interest. I mean, obviously coffee is an extremely competitive industry. Why do you think your coffee sold so well? Is it just the quality of the coffee itself? Or do you think it was just your engagement and local involvement? What do you think allowed it to take off? I think what we recognize to a certain degree, you know, Chris and I, we call him blue collar, working class. You know, we've been busting our butt since we're 16 years old, working just good, hard jobs. And I think that to a large part, the coffee industry, how do we say this without being, I don't, it's, it's, it can be somewhat pretentious on the front of a coffee bag when it says ASL 3000 meters. Well, a guy that works in a machine shop that's trying just to work his butt off to make his mortgage and get his children to school on time along with his, you know, with his wife working another job and they see a copy bag and they see ASL 3000 meters. Do they really care about what elevation their coffee is grown at? And so the average hardworking American to us up here in our area didn't seem interested in good quality coffee because the way that it was marketed towards them. You know, firefighters are out there or cops and they're making a good wage. They're, they've earned a good wage, but they're still drinking really bad coffee. I know like from my experience in the Navy, I can't describe how bad the coffee was. So I think for us, it's been an opportunity for us to go to people that are share similar maybe values or a similar outlook on life or whatever it is. It's easier for us to go to them and say, hey, man, hey, lady. You've been working hard your whole life. You're drinking coffee that's really not that good. So, you know, but you probably don't know that. So here, let us show you what a good cup of coffee tastes like. But hey, by the way, while you're drinking that coffee, let me tell you something about that coffee. And I think because of where we come from, we're able to communicate that to them really quickly. We're like, the majority of the coffee that we source, it comes from areas with hardworking individuals. But to that as well, what makes it appealing, I think, to you is if you've noticed our labels, we tried to make oh, yeah. it fun and not just your everyday average labels. I mean, our number one, hella dark coffee with notes of uh, screaming. What is it? Yeah. So that's, that's a good point. Let's make yes. that. And then uh, people love that because it's different and it's fun and they'll stop just for the label. They'll buy coffee just for the labels and the needs of the coffee. 
That's a good point. That needs to be that that needs to be that's actually a better example of what she's giving. Like so you on on the coffee bags, a lot of times you'll see all this information about where the coffee comes from. But one of those is is tasting notes, right? So you have the tasting notes. And I don't know about you, but I don't know what meadow foam honey tastes like. There is a, a bag of coffee that we bought when we were traveling and it said notes of meadow foam honey. And I grew up eat, uh, eating generic honey. So this metal foam honey, it's like, it doesn't relate with us. So that's when Chris and I, we decided, well, let's have fun. I mean, it's part of our four pillars. So rather than putting tasting notes on there, it's notes of fast cars and screaming guitar solos. People, they stop and they go, what the heck? You need your copy Hella Dark, which is, you know, up here is like kind of slang for like super awesome, rad, whatever. And which generally most coffees are named, you know, like, wings of the bird, you know, or something very nice and fluffy, whatever. It was like, you know, and our other copies are named Accelerator. And then we have Express Lane and then we have Kick Ash. So we have these unique names, but then we also have unique tasting notes on there that get people to laugh. And the good thing about that is that people will laugh and, they, and they'll buy the coffee, but a lot of times they'll buy it thinking that it's, hey, these are nice people. Ha ha, this name is kind of funny. But then they try the coffee and they're like, oh, oh that. We didn't really take them seriously, but we tried the coffee. The coffee is actually pretty good. So now they buy into the whole brand. And so I think that takes them further from just being a, a customer of ours to being like truly a client to then friends. And we've made friends and relationships. So that's kind of, I mean, it's the original energy drink. And so why do we got to be quiet about it? And why do we got to be listening to jazz when we're drinking coffee? It's like, no. Let's market and have fun with this brand. But at the same time, let's make sure it's still good coffee. You're talking about people taking it home and trying it out. So are you not able to let people taste the coffee at events? Well, that brings up another thing. So, you know, we've been, I mean, not only was the fire a challenge, but then after that, we're removed. We've had power outages. They shut the power app on us all the time. You know, what happened then? So we, we the fire happens and then we have these, then the next summer we have all these power outages. We still get through that. And then we're like, okay, these are going to get better. Well, then what happens? COVID happens. Bam. And so we, that's right when we started the farmer's market and we were not allowed to do any samples. But I think that's really was a blessing to us because it allowed us to engage people. You know, they could take their coffee. I and mean, the problem with that, we could brew coffee our way and it could taste good. And then they could go, wow, it tastes great. And then they go, they buy a bag and they go home and then they brew it in their brewer and they could brew it completely differently and it doesn't taste nearly as good. And so what that allowed us to do by not having samples is we had to step up our sales game and we had to sit there and really understand how to talk to people. And that's where the farmer's market was beautiful because people could, would come up and we would have to engage them very directly. Hey, what kind of coffee do you drink? What brand is it that you buy? What roast level is it that you buy? Okay, how do you brew your coffee? Tell me how you brew your coffee at home. Boom, boom, boom. And so by us being able to have those kind of communications and those interactions with individuals, we were still able to put coffee into their hand, but then we were able to send them off home and ha help them brew it correctly so that they came back. And now that sampling is allowed, we haven't had the need to do that because now we, have, we we're able to hire we now that works the farmer's market for us now, but we trade him in the same way. And so by not having sampling... It's allowed us and now our employee to engage individuals and it helps us up our game as well because we better know what we're talking about. Can you talk a little bit about where this coffee comes from? Like, how did you go through the process of buying coffee in bulk? Well, 
when we first started the business, that was part of it. You know, we got on the road and we met with some coffee roasters up in Oregon and we talked to them. So they gave us some good tips. And with, with us selling to our demographic, somebody that has the money in their pocket, but is choosing to buy, say, Folgers for three pounds at, at $9 for us to ask them, here, we got this amazing, beautiful coffee from Haiti that's grown, you know, shade grown, bird friendly and all that. And, but it's $17, you know, people would be apprehensive about that. And so we kind of, we said, okay, well, we still want to sell really good quality coffee with a story, but we need to be able to get that coffee. We still need to get coffee in hand. So we, we came up with a, a three-level price structure. And so we have coffee that's $12 a bag, $14 a bag, and then we have coffee that's $17 a bag. And we, we talked with um, the bean companies have uh, sales reps. So we sat down and really talked with them. And also, we wanted to make sure that we weren't dependent upon one supplier. So we source our beans from three separate suppliers. It's, you know, it was working with the buyers. It was working with what we wanted to do and how we wanted to approach our coffee, be able to get coffee into somebody's hand at $12, get them in there and say, yeah, that's the best coffee I've ever had. What else you got? And then work them up into, if they want to go into that area, work them up into the really, really good coffee. And so it's, it was really, it's really just working with our suppliers is what helped us. And then also with our, having our mission of who we wanted to sell our coffee to, that's kind of really helped shape what kind of coffee we have. I noticed that some of the coffee beans that you source, they have their own mission behind them. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's the great thing about coffee. I mean, it's such a wide spectrum. That's involved. You have all the way from the the multinational corporations that are just running and grabbing coffee beans, all the way down to the the small family that has maybe an acre of coffee trees. So when you look at that, you you look at the, the economies that are involved with coffee. You have a lot of choices that you could make. And so when we did that, it's like, hey, look, we are individuals. You know that it's it's critical for us to be involved with our community. So why should it be differently from the people that produce our coffee that we buy? And so say, for instance, we have two coffees. One's Road Zombie and the other one is called Six Speed. What's amazing about that is that Six Speed is a coffee from the Dominican Republic and it's grown on the Ramirez estate. They are very in tune with the environment. They use a lot of the excess coffee, the fruit from the coffee. They use that to, to create the gas. Then they use the, they, they capture the gas and it drives the equipment, uh, processing equipment on their farm, which is great. That's really nice that they use that. But what's mo what's really important is that they employ a lot of Haitians. And I'm sure you know, as most people know, Haiti is a country that's just been, you know, faced with challenges. And so what happens then is these Haitians, they learn what they're doing. They're going back to Haiti and they're finding these, these growing regions that they can grow these coffee. And so we're buying coffee from the, the plant that's training these Haitians. Then we're also buying the coffee from the farms of where these Haitians are growing their own coffee. You're talking about these farms that maybe like five years ago were producing 200 pounds of coffee that are now producing 20,000. These are small family farms that are growing. Yeah. And so how can you not want to buy coffee from people that are in these countries I mean, we can talk about our situation. As bad as we've had it, people out there have a very difficult life every single day of their life. And so to be able to support these kind of coffees, it's, it's, it means a lot. And then we have Atlas, and that's a, a really unique Bolivian coffee. And so the story behind that, an indigenous family, they've been farming their land for generations and generations. Well, what happened in the 80s, there was a, a huge surge in cocaine consumption around the world. 
Well, the cartels forced this family to produce cocoa plants. And so they were for many years producing cocoa plants for the cocaine industry. And so Cafe Creole, it's called Cocaine for Coffee. It's a project that they've been working on where they're helping these families convert their cocoa plants and their cocoa farms away from cocaine manufacturing to coffee. And so how can you say no to that? You know, and as long as it's ethically sourced, then we we'd feel good about that. You know, that's yeah. important in this industry. See, the, the thing is, too, is in the coffee world, there there's a big, big drive for organic coffee. Like everybody says, I want my coffee to be organic. But the problem is that the way that organic is treated is, you know, in order for a farmer in Colombia to have their farm certified as organic, they have to spend a lot of money and a lot of time in order to get that farm to be certified organic. So what do they do before it's certified organic? How do they sell the coffee? Well, that's what we like to do is find that coffee that's being grown by these families in a very ethical manner, in a organic manner. It may not be certified organic. And then that's the same thing with us. For us to have our coffee roastery certified, we have to spend a lot of money. We have to have a separate coffee roaster to be organic, all that. And so we're too small and we can't afford that. So why... Why should we expect our suppliers to go through all those costs as well? If there's people out there that aren't supporting the small guy out there, then how is that small guy going to ever succeed? So you're buying all this coffee from these amazing operations and these small farmers. How does this come to you? How much coffee are you buying at a time? Sometimes we're ordering, you know, a thousand pounds a month. And then we're obviously growing. And so there's times where we've got to order 2,000 pounds a month. You know, we, we have our strengths and weaknesses on an individual level. And Chris is really good at the organizational level. So she helps and you know, manages the money and all those aspects. And so her and I work together. Hey, I need to order this. And she's like, no, no, we can't afford that. What can you? We'll keep what, next month. Yeah, well, okay. Well, then I didn't, I'm going to order this amount. And let's hope that we don't get orders for that. We've made that mistake where... Like say, for instance, we have, we supply coffee to, um, a couple of trucks up in paradise that go around to all the uh, construction sites and they sell coffee and it's a not a really nice Brazilian coffee. Well, we were so we wanted to, so when we got ahead of ourselves, we boarded like, cause it was, they were buying a lot of it and it was going well, it was really cold out. And so we bought like, uh, about 400 pounds of it spent, uh, you know, almost, uh, two grand on that coffee. Well, then what happens? The weather gets all warm on us, like literally the next week. And it's like 70 degrees out. So nobody was buying coffee from their trucks for like a month. And I'm like, oh my God, we just spent almost, you know, it was two grand on this coffee and we're not even selling it, but we need money to buy this other coffee. And, uh, <laughs> you know, but so it's a good problem. Tonight, it's a juggle sometimes. You just have, it's something you have to stay on top of. Yeah, I was wondering how you guys share responsibilities in this business. Uh, how do you split your duties and work together as a team? So, you know, when you look at the business structure, it's like, okay, you know, what are our personal qualities? How do, how do we go about daily life? And when you look at how we manage our home life, you know, Chris is very good with the organizational part of things. And she's really good with the financial aspects of life. And me, I come from a sales world. So I'm more on the interaction with people side, more the creative side, having to come up with ideas and all that. That's been my experience. So then how do you translate that into copy business? Well, it's okay. Well, like the packaging and the, the mailing requires a lot of organization, the storing the coffee, 
it requires organization and that's Chris's strength. And so those are kind of the areas that she's fallen into. And I've fallen into the areas that require a little bit more creativity or a little bit more of the interpersonal interactions. Yeah, it's got it's definitely more the face out road roaster when it comes to all your social media, your videos and your first contact with clients and those are his strengths. He is definitely the salesman. And I'm good with that because I'm more on the quiet side and I'm not, I don't put myself out there um, like he is willing to. So that works out great for us. And I like handling things in the background and keeping things on par and the organization and inventory and things like that, that I really enjoy doing. So I think we work well. We balance each other out pretty well. Yeah. The thing for Chris, my gosh, we would probably be like the craziest copy company with, that was super broke. You know, so Chris brings some of my ideas down to reality. But we have fun. I mean, we have Scott's crazy guy. He's willing to do pretty much anything. Well, because we're trying, you know, we're reading back earlier about coffee and you know, what's so competitive. The best way to compete is not compete. So it's led us to make some odd choices that are doing okay. Like we put our coffee into a hardware store. People are like, why would you do that? And it's like, if you go down there, they're not just a hardware store. If you go down their copy maker section, they have aeropresses and pour overs and coffee makers. They have like half an aisle of coffee equipment. Why would you not want to put coffee bags in there next to the coffee? So we asked them, can we get the end cap? Can we put a big sign up? And I guess, yes, yes. So we are the only coffee that's in there. And when people go buy a coffee maker, they see our coffee. Well, they'd naturally buy a bag of coffee to go with their brand new coffee maker. And so that's just one idea like got other like you know we work with the guitar podcast guy and he's starting to put our name out there and it's like we're trying different things and be able to work together and chris being able to tell me that's a crazy idea speaking of crazy ideas i did see your promo video <laughs> yeah well there you go i mean that's that that kind of gives you an idea of yeah it goes, I mean, that's, again, I mean, that's the fun. Look at your average, not knock in the coffee industry, but look at your coffee advertising. It's so boring. And it's like, coffee is the original energy drink. And so we wanted to have like a video that was like over the top. And so people would be like, what the heck was that? Like, that's crazy. That's a coffee commercial. Okay. Yeah, so Hello Dark's our number one seller. It's our best-selling coffee. And that's the one that says notes of fast cars and screaming guitar solos. So I play guitar, and um, our buddy that owns Burkett's Automotive, he has a really nice fast car. And we just said, hey, Joel, what would you think if, you know, you got in your really cool Camaro and did donuts, and I played guitar while you did donuts around me? And uh, we did a little video of that. He's like, yeah, heck yeah. So we made the video, and... You know, we had our friends edit it and then we had a really cheesy voiceover on it. We just brought everybody together and, and had a little bit of fun, but we also made a promotional video that really differentiated ourselves from every single other coffee roaster in the area. So obviously your business has grown a ton. And I know, I think you said Christine initially wanted to start a coffee shop. That end point has kind of changed. It's kind of turned into an unknown at the point. We have a small coffee trailer. With us not knowing anything, we did make some mistakes. One of those was uh, we bought this trailer from somebody thinking that we'd be able to use it as a trailer and be able to go around and 
Well, it turns out that actually that trailer, even though the guy told us, yeah, it's, it meets all codes and everything like that, great. Well, we bought it, and it turns out that it doesn't meet all the codes that we needed it to, to meet. Well, to make it a permanent trailer, so meaning we could go park it on a corner or somewhere on a lot and sell coffee out of it every day as an everyday trailer. So it's it's limited to events only. So that was a disappointment in that we couldn't utilize the trailer in the way that we wanted to. So for now, we, we use it for events that we're permitted to do, and it does great in that aspect. It just didn't, you know, obviously we're kind of losing out on some income that we could have had had we done some better research on that. Maybe it was a blessing because all of a sudden then, you know, COVID hit was, so if we had got into like getting a, a coffee shop or you heck even a coffee trailer, you know, everything got shut down. And even for a while up here, all the food trucks were shut down. And so that, that would have been a lot of big investment. And then now with the brick and mortars, like if we've, the economy is at a point where I think it's just not in our best interest to commit that kind of a responsibility, both financially and physically to a business when there's a lot of uncertainty right now for us. Did I see that you guys are or were building a location in Paradise last year? So, yeah, that's a, so the, the, the cottage food organization, the, this is a good way for us to kind of discuss it. Oh, a year ago, the revenue was limited to $50,000. And so the first year we were at $49,500. We, we, we slid in $500 right underneath it. So let it stay a year into our CFO. And so that's when we started doing our, our investigation and, and we wanted to get placement into paradise because that would be, we'd be the only roasters up there. People are, are starting to rebuild up there. So we started going down that route. But the challenge is, is that, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of layers, but really at the end of the day, the town is still facing a tremendous amount of challenges. And I mean, we're talking septic challenges up there. We're talking construction challenges, weather challenges, power challenges. So everything is very, very, very slow. That building went from being supposed to be built in six months to now we're on almost two years. And so we were really going to be at a point where like, what do we do? And because the money, we were at that cap, but then all of a sudden with your help and a lot and other individuals help, the, the California passed that new bill, which allowed us to stay where we're at now. Right. In the nick of time. Yeah, in the nick of time, because that, that facility is still not finished. And it won't be finished probably now for another six months. We're not, we're talking almost three years past. Then that's the thing with the, the cottage food, which has been really helpful for us. You know, it's allowed us to work from home, especially us in a, in a time of, of craziness. It's allowed us to be close to home, but it's also, it, it hasn't constrained us by having the overhead of a brick and mortar. It's really given us ability to approach our business smart, methodically. And also be able to free up a certain amount of cash and reinvest it into ourselves rather than invest it into a rental or for a roastery is a bit of a challenge because, you know, you got to, you got to all the ducting and all the venting and everything for the roaster is very, very expensive. That's a big, big commitment for us, which is fine. And then we're going to have to go that route here soon, but the cottage food industry and, the, and how it's changed has really allowed us to develop our, our brand. So where do you see this going in the future? You know, you see yourself eventually moving into a brick and mortar, maybe in paradise, or what are your plans for the future? Yeah, the roasting is, is going to be the core part of our business for sure. We're going to get a tra a nice coffee trailer, one that's very custom. That's like our current coffee trailer is a 1957 aristocrat. 
So it's, you know, it's almost 70 years old. <laughs> it's seen some better days. And so a nice coffee trailer that we can go to events and, and really be profitable and also, you know, space where we, where we could put our, another employee. So we like to see it. We like the, the roasting is obviously we want to grow. And so we will eventually have to uh, grow into a brick and mortar, but we'd like to grow beyond that to have a nice tr a coffee trailer so that we can get our, be out there, face to the community. And then, uh, you know, I think the brick and mortar aspect, it's not really as tangible to us as it was in the past. But if we do it, it's almost got to be over the top. Like it would be cool to have, and this is the, the dreaming part of me where Chris will bring us down to reality. Like it would be cool to have a coffee shop that had a, a really fast go-kart track in the back with a nice stage where we could have some heavy metal concerts. Instead of going to your coffee shop and listening to jazz, it'd be nice to have a, a coffee shop where, you know, people could get together and have fun. I don't know. We'll, we'll see how things come together. We have a goal to grow our roasting. We have a goal to have a legit, nice coffee trailer, but we're still dreaming on the, on the whole coffee shop idea. All right, last question. Let's go back in time, play a little game of what if. What if the campfire had never happened? The, the town of paradise is still there. Your house is still there. Where would you guys be today? Would you have a coffee company? No. I, I doubt it. I doubt it. I've, I've dreamed of having a trailer, just a mobile coffee cart or tray, something in the coffee business for like 20 years. So. This whole coffee thing goes back with me personally for quite some time. But I mean, the world we were living in, in paradise, we were doing well in our current jobs. And, you know, you have your kids and you're raising them. And I don't know that we would have ever found the time or the money to even invest in starting this venture. It was given to us. The opportunity was literally given to us to do it or not. And we decided to take the plunge and do it. Given the loss, it's been the best blessing, I think, to us. It changed your definition, or at least for me, it's changed the definition of what is doing. We're doing well. You know, like we had been busting our butt, but, and so we had found a nice house. So we'd considered a, our dream home, but that came with pretty big mortgage. And in order to, to pay that mortgage, you know, Chris had to work, but I also had to continue to work a job that took me away from home all the time. So where would we be? I probably, I don't know, I would imagine stuck in the rat race. You know, the house that we have now, where we live now, it's smaller, it's much more simpler. Nothing works in it. Um, <laughs> to say that we had everything in paradise, and now we have a lot less. We make a lot less, but yet I would say we have so much more. If that makes sense at all, it's like yeah. And, uh, we would just be doing the same old thing. We'd just been doing the same old thing, and and I mean, it wasn't a bad thing. But now it's man. You asked that question, and I've really never thought about that. <laughs> it, it, we would be in a completely different world than we're in now. Well, it's an amazing story. It's an amazing business. If people want to reach out to you guys, how can they find you or how can they contact you? All the social media outlets, Facebook, Instagram, Rumble, Gab. So we're on those four social media networks, all Roadrooster Coffee Company, and then website, roadroostercoffee.com. So yeah, the website and all the social media are the best way. All right. Well, I'll put links to those in the show notes. And yeah, thank you guys so much for coming on and sharing.
Well, we thank, thank you. you. Appreciate yeah. your time. And that wraps up another episode of the Forger Podcast. For more information about this episode, go to forger.com slash podcast slash 57. And if you enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. A review is the best way to support the show and will help others find it as well. And finally, if you're thinking about selling your own homemade food, check out my free mini course where I will walk you through the steps you need to take to get a cottage food business off the ground. To get the course, go to cottagefoodcourse.com. Thanks for listening, and I will see you in the next episode.